It's good to be here with you today on this Palm Sunday, and we're going to, um, Lydia and I are going to share some music with you from Jesus Christ Superstar, kind of from that OG Palm Sunday. We're going to start off with some concerns from Judas Iscariot.
So back in that OG Palm Sunday, there was a certain troublemaker arriving in town, so we invite you to join us in greeting that troublemaker and his followers with some hosannas. So I invite you to rise in body or spirit. for me alone sing out for yourselves for you are blessed there is not one of you who cannot win the kingdom the slow the suffering the quick the dead here comes the key change 
deep in every human heart calls us to awaken, awaken to the work of justice, awaken to the work of compassion, awaken to the work of community. For in this time of human suffering and exaltation, we are called beyond awakening into action. May the chalice flame we now light guide our hearts in service to a greater good that holds all living things in holy embrace. The words of Reverend Susan Lizelle Lynch. Please be seated.
Good morning. Good morning. I'm Blake Magnuson, uh, filling in for Kristen Satterley. Um, I got to jump in. She is not feeling well today. So I took the opportunity to uh, be here and see you all. Um, this is Kristen's welcome that I get to read. I'm so happy to welcome everyone to First Unitarian. If this is your first time here or you've been part of this congregation for years, whether you are in the physical or Zoom sanctuary or the family room or social hall, each one of you is an important part of our celebration today. In fact, take a moment to look around at this beautiful congregation. Notice the people near you or far away. It is good to be together. And it is also good to remember that every one of us, young and old, is a human being. And that human beings get tickles in our throats and our devices make noise. Any of us might wiggle or get up and dance to the music, giggle or sigh, or be moved to shout, Hallelujah! This may be a place of stillness, but while we are here together, it is never a place of total silence. And we wouldn't want it to be. We love all the little sounds that remind us that this is a living, multi-generational congregation. Speaking of generations, we have something new for our little ones. Down here, right in front, is our new playground. That's right, playground with an R, and also with an L because we have toys here and a soft rug to hang out during the service. We still have the activity table in the back if that's more your speed, and the family room across the way with toys and a live feed of the service if you really want to cut loose. Welcome to all this beautiful morning. Come, let us worship together. I invite you into a time of meditation. Settle yourself in whatever way helps you feel grounded. Maybe closing your eyes or lowering your gaze. Pay attention to your breath in and out. Breathing slowly and comfortably. Perhaps lengthening each breath, each exhale stretched just a bit, each inhale extended. Slowly letting your breath guide your body and mind in settling. 
Feel yourself becoming more aware of your body. Aware of how you're seated. Of where your hands or legs or feet are placed. Give attention to how your body feels and see if you can shift or move to help you feel most at ease. Notice each part of your body with curiosity. Like, isn't that interesting that my shoulder is twitching? With each breath, notice your body with interest. Shift, if needed, to help you feel settled and grounded. As we prepare for prayer, find that place inside you that reminds you that you are human. That tells you stories of deep wisdom, of deep knowing. In these next minutes of stillness, find that place inside of you that only speaks when you make time to listen.
It sometimes seems that the headlines are a never-ending stream of scary, sad, hopeless news about the world. And this week is no exception. And so we gather to pray and offer our collective love and energy for hope and change in the world. And also, as reminders to ourselves, that there is also goodness in the world, that there is community and love. Spirit of life, in the midst of it all, help us to hold both. As we remember those places and people who are hurting, help us to also hold joy. I invite you to name, to bring to mind those names that are on your hearts this morning. And at the sound of the chime, to name them aloud, all those names of places and people on your hearts. All these named aloud and held on our hearts, we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal known by many names. May they feel our love. May they feel our care. And in addition to these names, we hold our collective prayers for David Pizarro and his daughter who were injured in a car accident this week. May they heal quickly and fully. Spirit of life, we pray for our elected officials who are sometimes led by fear or ignorance and make decisions that harm us, that harm those we care about. May they instead make decisions grounded in love. We pray for those at the front lines working to counter policies of injustice May they be safe, and thank you. We offer gratitude to the seven members of this congregation who visited the Permian Basin in New Mexico this week, last week. May their act of solidarity and reflection and prayer support those most impacted by climate change and economic inequity. And may we all find ways to deepen our solidarity with the world. In the face of those making dangerous, cruel decisions that seek to ban our humanity, we pray that it doesn't harden our hearts, that we remain open and courageous and hopeful. May we be ever committed to supporting all people in leading lives of worth and of dignity. Amen. Love be with you. So on that original 
Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, while the crowds were singing Hosanna, Hosanna for their new radical, exciting prophet, and singing Jesus Christ Superstar, tell us, are you who you think you are? Those in the halls of power were a little more concerned. The priests and the Pharisees were not sure about this guy. Good Caiaphas, the council waits for you. The Pharisees and priests are here for you. Ah, gentlemen, you know why we are here. We've not much time and quite a problem here. Listen to that howling mob of blockheads in the street. A trick or two with lepers, and the whole town's on its feet. He is dangerous. He is dangerous. That man is in the round right now to whip up some support. A rabble-rousing mission that I think we must abort. He is dangerous. He is dangerous. Look, Caiaphas, they're right outside our yard. Quick, Caiaphas. Go call the Roman guard. No, wait. We need a more permanent solution to our problem. What then to do about Jesus of Nazareth? Miracle wonder man, hero of fools. No riots, no army, no fighting, no slogans. One thing I'll say for him, Jesus is cool. We dare not leave him to his own devices. His half-witted fans will get out of control. But how can we stop him? His glamour increases in leaps and in bounds. He's the top of his pole. I see bad things arising. The crowd crowned him king, which the Romans would ban. I see blood and destruction because of one man, a blood and destruction, because of one man, because, because, because of one man, alien elimination, because of one man, because, because, because of one, cause of one, cause of one man. What then to do about this Jesus mania? How do we deal with the carpenter king? Where do we start with the man who is bigger than John was when John did his baptism thing? Fools, you have no perception. The stakes we are gambling are frighteningly high. We must crush him completely like Jack John before him. This Jesus must die for the sake of one nation. This Jesus 
die, must die, must die, this Jesus must die. So like John before him, this Jesus must die, must die, must die, this Jesus must, Jesus must, Jesus must die. This is from John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, which means a great deal more additional people. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. I'm of a certain age, and I imagine that there are people here of that age when the most placed record in my household was Jesus Christ Superstar. Anybody else? Oh yeah, my people. The Brown Album, remember that? Man, I wore that vinyl out. I know Susan Peck is really into that too. And we often sing snippets of it to each other around the office just to sort of poke at each other. So it's like walk by her office and I'll be far from the crowds in the garden of Gethsemane. That's, that's actually why we have professional musicians instead of me singing. So you know, it's good to see the contrast, right? Appreciate what we have. Anyways, it was a real joy for me a couple of years back, probably four years now, when the touring company for Jesus Christ Superstar came to Pope Joy Hall. And my friend, Reverend Roger Powers, invited me to join him. 
So Reverend Roger is the pastor at St. Andrew's Presbyterian. He's a great progressive minister. In fact, Albuquerque is blessed with a lot of great progressive ministers. It's an amazing religious community here. So like me, Roger has a background in social movement organizing, especially around peacemaking. So he knows a lot about the joys and the frustrations of getting a group, a group of folks to take action for a cause. So the term herding cats, of course, comes to mind, but a more accurate one might be carrying frogs in a wheelbarrow. So, so anyways, we watched the musical together and we saw how Jesus gets accused by his supporters of things that he didn't do and how his messages get turned around and used against him and how the folks in his movement are sometimes lazy and sometimes even self-serving to the detriment of the cause. And I leaned over to Roger and I whispered, this is a musical about organizing. <laughs> and he agreed. And that's when the seed of this sermon was planted. And uh, also in combination with some conversations with some congregants, Jesus was not just an organizer. In my mind, he was also anti-fascist. Our theme this month is resistance. It's a new month. And as Reverend Angela pointed out in one of our worship planning meetings last month, in the past year, we've spent a lot of time on change, talking about change, talking about resistance to change. So in this month of the, Christmas, of the Christian Holy Week of Good Friday and Easter, we're talking about pacifism and activism and rebellion and fighting back. So next week, of course, we'll be observing Easter weekend. There's a Good Friday service at 7 o'clock. There's a sunrise service on Sunday morning at 6.30. Uh, and the main two services, Reverend Angela will be preaching about how to persist in a world that can be overwhelming. Persistence can be a kind of resistance. The following Sunday, I'll be preaching about how we can rebel against the norms of capitalism that we hold in our heads, even if we don't realize we're holding them. And that Sunday after, Reverend Angela will be talking about queer theology. And she's going to ask, answer a question that she was asked recently. That question is, are we a queer church now? So come back and hear that, the answer to that question. And the final Sunday of the month is our annual coming of age service. This is such a good service where our youth set the example for resilience and hope. It's going to be a great month of thinking and feeling about resistance. So because April contains the Christian Holy Week as well as Passover, because of the Christian Holy Week is, is this, this month, this is the most Jesus-y month of the year. <laughs> so it is a fine time to spend some time thinking about Jesus and his legacy. And a friend of mine commented that Jesus is like a Rorschach test. And I think my friend is right. You know, the, the ink blots that a therapist will show a patient and get their reaction to, I think just like that, people look at Jesus and they see what they want to see. And I've preached before about how, about all the ways that people choose to see what they want to see in these Jesus stories. And to be honest, we do that too. I think ours are more accurate, but, <laughs> but I'm open to, I have, I have a classmate from seminary who is a UU minister up in New Hampshire, and he had tattooed on his forearm, facing him, the words, you could be wrong. 
And that, I think about that a lot. Could be wrong. Anyways, Unitarian Universalism is the merging of two Christian traditions, Unitarianism, Universalism. Christianity is in our DNA. And we must reckon with what that means, no matter what we think today. We have to ask ourselves, how is our theology influenced, our theology now, influenced by our religious history? So the short answer is a lot. So we need to understand our past in order to move into our future in a thoughtful way. And that's why we got to talk about Jesus. So what is an anti-fascist? Let's start by talking about what a fascist is. So fascism has a lot of definitions, but it's generally a political system based on having a very powerful leader, maybe even a cult of personality. This political system does not allow any opposition, and it is often based on being proud of some imagined nationality or imagined race. So fascism often scapegoats, creates scapegoats in order to blame them for all of society's ills. And it'll argue that it's the scapegoats, that if the scapegoats were only eliminated, things would be better, or more commonly, return to some imaginary golden age in the past. Violence is the first and last currency of the fascists. Fascism kills. Fascists rely on violence and the threat of it to get their way. Fascist systems may consider a strong standing military an essential, essential, but fascists also rely on domestic paramilitaries and civilian thugs to exert their power. Now an anti-fascist, obviously, is someone who opposes fascism. But I think in the modern conception it goes a little farther than that. Anti-fascists, of course, are not a single organized group but rather are decentralized, sometimes leaderless. And they can be made up of members of the scapegoat group that the fascists seek to eliminate. Anti-fascists can be pacifists, or they can believe that violence is necessary to protect themselves and others. Anti-fascism is often a relational practice. And by that I mean they focus on building a community of care and protection by knowing and trusting each other by knowing and trusting the people around them. They may be less likely to rely on hierarchies to organize themselves, but instead use other models with an emphasis on communication and on consensus. So again, I'm making some very sweeping generalizations about a huge diverse movement with a lot of different forms and expressions. I apologize to the anti-fascists in the room. I'm probably screwing this up. But there are a few other characteristics. First, these groups often focus on local action. They respond on the community level to both threats and needs. They also seek to protect themselves and the most vulnerable among them. Self-defense is considered a right, whether by political action or civil disobedience or outright literal fighting back. And there is a focus on mutual aid and that's where people share resources to take care of the larger community. For example, back in the day, the Black Panthers served free breakfast to hundreds of school children in Oakland. This mutual aid idea is rooted in the belief that there are, that is already 
plenty of wealth for everyone. There's already plenty of wealth for everyone. It just needs to be distributed fairly. It just needs to be distributed fairly. Not, instead of a few families hoarding all of it, the majority of it. So why would we call Jesus an anti-fascist? We need to consider the historical context for Jesus. During the period before, during, and after when Jesus was alive, the area known as Palestine was passed from one outside empire to the other, to another. You had the Persian Empire, you had Alexander the Great coming through, the Ptolemaic dynasty, which ruled from Egypt, and King Antiochus. And about 60 years before Jesus was born, Palestine became a Roman protectorate. Protectorate is quite a euphemism because the last thing Rome did was protect the citizens of Palestine. Rather, they used client kings and sometimes direct rule to squeeze as much wealth as they could out of the land and out of the people of Palestine. So in what way were the Romans fascist? There's this really great book called Zealot by Reza Aslan that talks about, that, that historically researches the times that Jesus lived in. And the Romans, conveniently, were really great record keepers. So there's not a lot of written records about Jesus specifically, but there is so much information about how the Romans governed. So based on what we understand from that time, the Romans did have fascist tendencies. For sure, the government was totally authoritarian. They also promoted a kind of hyper-masculinity that we see in fascist groups today. And of course, the Romans were all about violence and warfare. And the Romans would occasionally pass laws trying to establish traditional morality. Traditional morality. So we see fascist strains in our modern times with people passing laws for some imagined traditional, traditional morality, which is really just more scapegoating, right? But in the spirit of intellectual honesty, there were ways that ancient Rome didn't quite fit the classic fascist model. You know, and just as a side, fascism has a really strong anti-intellectual strain. And that's because their model does not stand up to rational scrutiny. So they have to rely on, on they have to ignore rather, reason and logic to say what they have to say. They have to ignore reason and logic to say the things that they say. So in that way, we can actually be anti-fascist by making coherent, rational arguments and being honest with ourselves about telling the truth, even when the truth is inconvenient, doesn't quite line up with our messages. It's a way to be anti-fascist. Anyways, fascists usually think of themselves as some kind of master race and everything else deserves destruction. But Rome was different. This is a funny thing. They could simultaneously admire a country, admire its people, even as they were conquering and devastating it. It's a couple things to hold together, huh? Sometimes the Romans even adopted parts of the cultures they, they conquered into their own, like worshiping gods from other countries. So Romans, some fascism, some not. Into this environment comes Jesus, and in his story are things that are, I think, right out of the anti-fascist playbook. For example, in the New Testament, you can find Jesus making lots of references to the kingdom of God, the 
the kingdom of God. And in the context of the times, the kingdom of God wasn't something that would happen someday up in heaven. It would meant a kingdom that day, right there in Palestine, that would be led by the radical Jews of Jesus' day that would overthrow and kick out the Romans. That was their idea of the kingdom of God. Now, more symbolically, modern Christian theologians talk about how Jesus took the crucifix, which is, was the device by which the empire of Rome asserted control and domination, how it killed people it considered terrorists. Jesus took the crucifix and turned it through his death into a symbol of liberation and the opposite of control and domination. He took that, that symbol and turned it upside down. And there are more. Protecting the vulnerable, especially those who would be scapegoated. You may have heard this story from John chapter 8. More John. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they said this to test him so that they might bring some charge against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin throw the first stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Jesus put himself between the violent men and the scapegoat, and he shamed the men away. Nice work, Antifa. <laughs> and then there's a story of the fishes and loaves that Blake shared with us. And my take on the story isn't that Jesus miraculously turned a few crusts and fillets into a feast for 5,000. My take is that is a metaphor for moving from scarcity thinking to abundance thinking. Moving from scarcity thinking to abundance thinking. So if everyone, instead of thinking that they had scarce resources, just shared a little food, no one need go hungry. If everyone shares a little, no one need go hungry. And that is how mutual aid works. All right, I think I've uh, tortured this meme of Jesus being Antifa quite long enough. And I, I want to talk about us as a congregation. So how are we resisting fascism? Well, in so, so many ways. Because we warmly welcome and affirm everyone who comes through our doors in whatever body brings them in, in whatever gender or sexuality they carry, we are resisting that hypermasculine nonsense that is part of fascism. And we do so much mutual aid. Some of it is very visible, like our food pantry, giving out 100 bags of groceries a week. But some of it folks don't see. 
because we respect the confidentiality of the people we help out. People in this congregation very, very generously donate to what we call the minister's discretionary fund, which is a really jargony way of saying a pot of money for helping out people when they're in trouble. So without knowing it, this congregation has kept people off the street by putting them in a long-term hotel until they could find a place to stay. Without knowing it, this congregation has paid for a car repair that allowed somebody to keep their job and keep their housing and stay sober. And without knowing it, this congregation has paid for a person to leave their state where a certain medical procedure is illegal and come to New Mexico where they could get that procedure and get the care that they deserve. Life-changing mutual aid, thanks to the generosity of this congregation, thanks to your generosity. And if you feel like making a donation to the minister's discretionary fund, it gets used well. So let me say to you, on behalf of these people that you will never meet, thank you so very, very much. And I want to talk about one more attempted act of resistance. Folks may be aware that a while back, this church applied to host a safe outdoor space. Specifically, we were asking the city for permission to host 10 cars in our south driveway. In our south driveway, while the owners slept in those cars overnight. Well, after a long time, we recently received our answer from the city. They declined our application. Now, the details are arcane, involves ordinances and all that, but the gist of it is that we would not be able to provide the level of protection and support required by the ordinance. And the city is right. As the ordinance is written, it's beyond our capacity as a church to provide that level of support. So I'm disappointed, but I'm not going to appeal. But I am more committed than ever to serving the unhoused. So I'm turning my attention to another city initiative. Recently, the mayor released a bundle of proposed reforms and changes with the goal of creating 5,000 new units of housing by 2025, two years. Now that's an audacious goal, but it's precisely the kind of systemic change that we need. The portfolio has five elements, converting hotels into subsidized housing, converting commercial office buildings into housing, expanding the nuisance abatement laws, and that's when properties get abandoned and then poorly used, expanding the workforce that actually constructs housing, we need more builders, and adjusting zoning laws to create more options for housing, for example, making it easier to have to build a casita in your backyard. And these proposals may not seem as sexy. I mean, it's just governing, right? It's just more laws. But they're not as sexy as letting folks sleep in our park parking lot overnight. But let's face it, 10 cars in a parking lot is a drop in the bucket in the face of what we're, we're looking at here. What we really need is this kind of bold, multifaceted approach to move the needle in the right direction. We are in nothing less than a humanitarian crisis 
when we need to act. Every person sleeping on a sidewalk is a crisis. Every person who doesn't know where they're sleeping tonight or next week or next month is a crisis. And all of us who know where we're sleeping next month need to pull together to make a difference. Something has changed in this church in the last year. About a year ago, I started getting calls once or twice a month from folks, and the story was almost always the same. My landlord raised my rent by three or four hundred bucks. I wasn't able to pay it. They're going to evict me. I got about a week before I'm on the street. What can you do for me? These are working adults. What does it say about us as a city when a working adult loses their housing? So when I mentioned that we're putting people in hotels, that's what we're doing. It's short term. We're not, we're not putting them up long term. But we're, once a person gets pushed onto the street, it's really hard to get off the street. So we have to act, and it's our mandate as Unitarian Universalists that we pray as our actions. Actions are our prayer. So here's the ask. All these proposals by the city are just proposals, and they need to be approved by the city council. So I'm asking everyone here to pay attention to the process by which the council considers these ideas. So if you go to the city website, cabq.gov, right at the very top, you can see the logo for Housing Forward. That's the name of this initiative. It's right on the front page. So get informed and write or call your council person and tell them that you think this is a good idea. It's really important that we make this change because we cannot accept the status quo anymore. It's not, thanks. It's not, it's not just a downtown problem. It's not just downtown, it's us. These are our neighbors. These are our families. Anyways, I don't know if that action qualifies as being anti-fascist, but I, I do know that if we can get this done, we can make this a more just and caring city. So who cares if it's anti-fascist or not? It's just gonna do some good. And my, my prayer for us as a congregation is that we, we will continue to protect the vulnerable, that we will continue to share generously, and we, that we will continue to resist anyone who wants to destroy or dominate us. May it be so. Thoughts, prayers, they have become synonymous with a certain political ill will, a refusal to act, to listen. But I think we know thoughts and prayers are what our action comes from, what it comes back to and what sustains it as it unfolds, as action changes us. We have a lot to think about. We have a lot to pray on this week, every week. And that's the place we give from, that verge of action, 
that is almost impossible to miss if you have your eyes open, your ears open, or whatever feelers you sense with, tune to as you do those things. So let's think and pray knowing that when it is time to act, we will. When others are hungry, it is time to act. While the basic need of hunger might seem like more of a metaphor, millennia removed from the agrarian age of Jesus and Rome, it is simply, inexplicably, an unmet need in our community. And it is one our Change for the Future partner, Seed to Need, is committed to addressing growing fresh fruits and vegetables for donation to local food pantries, 725,000 pounds since 2008. You can donate to Seed to Need by planting your loose change in the collection box or by using the envelope on the back of the chair, writing CFF on the envelope. Your generosity sustains this community and all the bodies in it. Step out of line, the 
the man come and take, take you away. away. You better stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Stop. Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Stop. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Yeah, you gotta stop. you join me in blessing these offerings today? Your generosity is the way that we live out our belief in abundance in the world. Thank you so much for your generosity. I want to let you know about the details of how you can participate in our Easter offerings next weekend. The first one's coming up on Friday night. Our Good Friday service will be led by Reverend Bob at 7 p.m., this is a service that's about our modern-day crucifixions. It is not necessarily a service that's going to feel welcoming to young people. It's more of a somber, kind of serious service. Um, then on Sunday morning, those of you who are bright and early risers, please join me at 6.30 for our sunrise service. This will be a fun gathering. We're going to start outside by the fire pit in the courtyard and then we'll come into the social hall for the sunrise itself. We're gonna have coffee and tea and all the things you need to keep you warm, as well as baked goods and great music. And so we warmly welcome, welcome you to um, participate in that service. We'll be talking about um, Easter from a lens of transformation and a, a reemergence of hope. And then Reverend um, Angela will lead us in a normal nine o'clock and 11 o'clock service that Easter Sunday. After the 11 o'clock service, all kinds of things going on. We're going to have, uh, let's see, a tea party. Let me, let me get this right. We are going to have, yes, an Easter tea party, an Easter egg hunt for our young people, uh, an Easter parade, so wear your very favorite Easter bonnets and hats and all those kinds of things to participate in the Easter parade. And we are also going to have a bake sale, and all of the funds raised from the bake sale will help support future multi-generational programming. So please bring your whole family, participate in all the fun that's going to happen after the service. Yeah, and reach out to Alana to sign up uh, to help out with that. Members of our board of directors would like to invite you to have a cup of coffee with them after the service. Uh, I see a couple of board members here. I don't know if you want to raise your hand so we know who you are. Or, uh, <laughs> chat tables. Would you like to meet people and have meaningful conversations on Sundays after church? You're invited to join the chat tables in the social hall. These will be short, informal conversations after the 11 o'clock service every week. A host will be at the table to help get things started. Folks at the chat table will be reflecting on today's question from the service. And whether or not you plan to join the chat tables, here's a question to stimulate conversation throughout the week. 
how do we protect the most vulnerable among us? We've also got a concert. Uh, if you'd like to buy tickets for Emma's Revolution concert in April, talk to Susan after the service. And I'm excited to share with you that at our special congregational meeting that we had this past week, you all voted to approve uh, putting a new roof on the Religious Education Building. Hooray. <laughs> That's going to help us to fix the leaks that are happening right now and also just help build up our infrastructure for future generations using that building. So thank you. Um, we expect that we'll have a short-term capital campaign happening in the near future, followed by a loan if we need to take one out after that capital campaign. So be watching for details about how to um, give us your money so that we can build the new roof. <laughs> we are um, we're made up of a community of newcomers and people who have been with us for many generations, and we really especially love all those newcomers that come each Sunday. If you are a newcomer today, and you feel comfortable just raising your hand so we could greet you with some applause. We'd love to see all of our newcomers here. Welcome. Welcome. We're so happy to have you here today. Will you all rise in body or spirit and join me in our peace greeting, placing one hand over your heart and the other hand extended out towards this community. We see each other. We connect heart to heart. We're so glad you're all here. continue to protect the vulnerable, may we continue to share generously, may we resist those who would dominate and control us, go in peace and practice radical love.
join us.